Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is entitled LDS Female Sexuality, Part 2, originally produced and published by the Mormon Mental Health Podcast. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, so we've talked about all the feminist... Um, I guess critiques. Why don't you tell me a little bit more about the positives? About you know what what are the positives of our sexual messages? Are there any positives that women can you know like you said when you were an adolescent you found some protection mm-hmm. um, and some boundaries that you could place around yourself that felt uh, comfortable for yourself? Sure. Well, you know I think that for the women that demonstrated sexual agency, they were the minority of my sample. But for those that it for whom it worked, it worked very well. And that is that to say that, uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, that they really owned the law of chastity as a system that actually protected what they most wanted. What they really wanted was a committed form of sexuality, as in marriage. They wanted somebody who had reserved this very uh, sacred, vulnerable, um, form of self-expression for the context of marriage and specifically for them, that it gave them a great sense of safety. And so they really cherished that cultural um, gift, so to speak, and said, you know, this is what I want. And it's not about shame and not me not being enough. It's about my faith really giving me an opportunity that I really want for myself and for my marriage down the road. So they you know, in the, in the case of these women, they did marry men who also had remained virginal until marriage. They moved very comfortably into marital sexuality because desire was never the problem. They always understood that desire was a good thing. And they were able to just be excited on the wedding night, not afraid, excited that now they could move into this new domain, this new way of being together that symbolized their union and their, uh, this next important step in their lives. So, um, and yes, I would say these are women that felt very comfortable that they were sexual beings, felt very clear that God was comfortable with that. And saw what that they had been created that way, that there was a purpose in that. That's right. And that the men in their lives were also very committed to the same ideals, committed to family, that the church, in a sense, domesticates male sexuality in a way that's protective of women and what they most want. Yeah, you speak of this positive that there's much less of a double standard within our LDS culture regarding sexual behavior. There's made differences in how we perceive desire, but we do differ significantly from other cultures, even other Christian cultures, in that we do Mm -hmm. expect both our young men and women to adhere to the same law of chastity. That's Um, right. So men are held to that standard uh, equally, um, much more so, I think, than... than That's right. I, I think I cite this research in the dissertation, which looks at the differences in compliance among um, faiths that hold uh, virginity till marriage as a standard. And I remember Catholicism in particular is one of them, but there was much more, there's much less compliance among men in Catholicism than there is among men in Mormonism. So we have a way of both saying we value it and really meaning it, meaning that there are losses for men who choose to be sexual before marriage, in meaning institutional losses that can't hold the, you know, that they, 
lose their right to pass the sacrament, hold the priesthood, those kinds of things. And so there's so compliance is higher. And I think that eases the double standard uh, in its effect on women. Where I was at Boston College, which was a Catholic school, and teaching this human sexuality course, really seeing the ways in which girls there really did carry the sense that they should be virginal, felt a lot of shame for it, but were often partnering with Catholic boys who didn't hold the same standard. And that's very fractious and undermining for someone who's saying, I'm supposed to be virginal and you're, you don't. And so how do we do that? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, at least the standard for us is, is the same. Um, what about the concept of the atonement or forgiveness? Did you look at any of those things? I mean, those are concepts obviously very dear to our doctrine. Mm-hmm. Were those tools that women could somehow tap into or not so much? You know, I would say, yes, they were able to in the sense that they really felt clear that God had forgiven them for bad decisions that they had made. And I really think they believed it. I don't think they questioned that God held them responsible for it. But again, as I said earlier, they would hold still the question of whether or not their husbands could tolerate knowing this about them, whether their husbands would actually forgive them. Um, The other way that I would actually talk about is there was one person I interviewed in particular who'd grown up in a fairly abusive home, psychologically abusive, and in her adolescence had made a lot of poor decisions in the sexual realm because she was looking for love and looking for approval that she'd gotten so little of as a child. And she found the church to be very embracing of her personally. She had a wonderful bishop who really understood what her situation had been, who was compassionate, who didn't Um, have the kind of criticism and devaluing stance that she anticipated, you know, because that's very much what she'd experienced in her life up to that point. And so she really felt that she was able to engage in the question of, uh, of repentance and the atonement and really felt that her bishop, that here from a radical feminist perspective would be seen as, you know, a man, she's going to a man, she has to talk about her sexuality to him, and that's how wrong it is, that she found it to be very helpful for her, very reassuring to have his approval, his warmth, and his um, clarity of thought in the process of her coming into a new way of life within herself and around her sexuality. Yeah, that's what I think is so fascinating that this same repentance um, process and experience can have such diverse uh, effects on people. You know, I hear the people who just were traumatized by that, and I hear the people who, you know, in essence, it almost kind of saved their lives. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is interesting how the same process can can have very different outcomes for yes. for our members. And I think that's important to, to look at because I, I think that there's danger in... Um, staying only on one side of the equation on that. That's right. And I I think a piece I would add to that is that, you know, it's really the social um, forgiveness that women found themselves struggling with. And I think partly because of the way that we educate the boys in the church, which is to say, if you stay virginal, then you will get the gift of a virginal woman who will want to be sexual with you for eternity, you know. (laughs) So, you know, it's like kind of a setup of saying, that um, you get to have this prize of the virtuous virginal woman, essentially. And also, I think men, in my practice anyway, have talked about feeling set up, which is to say that they kind of grew up believing that once they got married, then 
sex was going to be a regular part of their lives. And then marrying someone who didn't feel comfortable in the sexual realm and then feeling that they'd been tricked a bit around what this was going to actually mean for them. Right. Yeah, and I talk a lot about this with my couples as far as the word intimacy. We usually reserve that to mean physical intimacy, but, I, you know, intimacy espouses so much more than just the physical. And kind of this idea, if I laid out all my stuff on the table, you know, the crap, or the good, <laughs> everything, yes. would you still love me? You know, would you still love me if you knew everything about me? And I right. think this can go either way for men and women. And I think many times in LDS marriages, at least what I see for the ones who are coming in to see me, is that these underlying themes of shame and secrecy are yes. often what are the main issues ruining the relationship, even though they have different words for it. You know, they'll say, well, it's pornography or it's because we don't talk to each other or it's because of communication. But really what's underlying that is the shame and secrecy. Absolutely. And I really think a vital, you know, um, vibrant sexual relationship is very much linked to the feelings of authenticity, the feelings of safety and really being able to expose and express all of who you are, warts and all, imperfection and all, and to still be received by the other. That partly why sexuality gets shut down in long-term relationships, in my opinion, is because people are anxious about whether or not they're really going to be accepted all the way through. And so they will pick up on signals from their spouse and edit themselves and you know, not bring to the relationship the parts of themselves that they think would not be desirable to him. And then it's hard to really encourage desire and to be fully expressive of who you are when you feel like that um, it may not all be received well. So I think that's a really important part of psychological and sexual intimacy. Yeah, am I still lovable? Am I still worthy of your love? You know, That's even right. though I, I have faltered or I'm not maybe everything you thought I was. <laughs> right. um, so what can you tell us about your findings as far as um, can you break it down as far as the I know this wasn't quantitative, but can you kind of give us an idea of how many women out of the 16 you would say did have healthy sexual agency? How mm-hmm. many had awful sexual agency and what did the middle look like? Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, again, it's not representative, so it's not fair to say, you know, 10% are one way or the other. But of the 16, I roughly put three in the category of having sexual agency premaritally and postmaritally. I mean, sometimes people weren't perfect in all moments in all situations, but in in large part, three of those women really held the stance of of being sexual agents in, in all contexts. And then I'm trying to remember, I don't know if I wrote it this way in the dissertation, but I... I know at least two women did very poorly in all contexts. Um, but I would say the majority of the women didn't do all that well. That's what I would say. Meaning I would hope for them to have a lot more comfort with being sexual beings than they exhibited. Some, as I have mentioned in this interview anyway, some did better in the premarital realm and then didn't do so well postmaritally. Um, and then others, it was the opposite. Some didn't do so well premaritally, but then in the context of marriage and marrying a good guy who they felt safer with and they felt they could expose more of themselves with, that they grew into more sexual agency in the context of marriage. So um, so I would say, unfortunately, it was a minority that really had the healthiest sexuality, the sexuality that we would hope all women would have, the kind of agency we would hope all women would have within themselves. 
and the majority were inhibited to some degree or another, um, with maybe, a, you know, again, a couple being the most extreme. Right. And so going back to your sample, and I know these are just assumptions and maybe there's people out there who want to test these assumptions, which I hope they do. But with with it being a highly educated group, with it being a group willing to talk about their sexuality, with it being um, a group maybe even outside of you know traditional Utah, uh, it, that's a little surprising to me that it, it was still the majority, you know, and that I think speaks mm-hmm. to that if that sample had a lot of issues and my assumption would be that this would be a a general problem among our whole population. Um, So that, so yes, that would be very much what my feeling is also, of course, I don't have the data to back that up, but certainly in my experience as a therapist, of course, those are the couples that are coming to me, but even um, just among friends and associates in the church that have talked to me about it, there certainly is a lot of there certainly seems to be a lot of evidence that many people are not comfortable in the realm of sexuality in their marriage, meaning specifically women are not comfortable and not finding the the joy and the pleasure that they would like to feel. Yeah, and I agree with that. And I think that many couples come to me not for sexual issues. They come to me because of their communication or they come to me because of mm-hmm whatever other issues they're having in their marriage. And so when I bring up the topic of sexuality, I think, first of all, they're surprised that I'm talking about that. And then as we go into it further, I, I also see that there are some issues there that right that yeah. they could probably improve upon for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so can you summarize then just some of your stories as far as the women who were involved in the study and, and what you found as far as, especially the ones who did well, what were their stories? what were their stories about and maybe even some of the other ones? Sure. Um, well, the one that I thought was um, probably captured the ability to hold her sexual agency the best was um, the same person that I talked about who had dis- kind of discovered her capacity for sexual pleasure and didn't feel shame about it but felt a lot of excitement. And she really did very well through the dating years. She was quite desirable. She was attractive smart and got a lot of male attention and would sometimes be, you know, told, oh, come on, give me a kiss. I took you to dinner. You won't give me a kiss. And she felt completely comfortable saying, no, (laughs) I have no interest in kissing you. And she was very clear in the interview that this was her body and she had every right to, to express herself with it in consistent with what she wanted only. She was very clear that she did not need to take care of the men. And she really saw the law of chastity as a gift to her. I mean, she really was very much saw it as about her relationship with God, not her relationship with any man or managing her desirability at all. And um, and she, when she got married, she was, they were very excited about it. She, she moved very easily into marriage. Um, it was really just a lovely experience for her, her first sexual experience. It was just like, you know, I've waited for so long and here I am with the right person and it's really wonderful. So what was interesting to me in the findings was that women who would perhaps challenge the gender role ideology were not necessarily the women who demonstrated more sexual agency. So So in other words, the the women who were not happy with uh, the roles of women and men in the church were not necessarily the ones having great agency. 
That's right. So what radical feminism would predict is that the ones that would challenge those gender roles would in fact be the ones who would be more able to make space for themselves and their desires in the sexual realm. And I didn't find that to be true. Now, that, that could be that, that women had issues with gender role ideology because it had been hard for them and yet had still internalized a message where they should still take care of the needs of men. So there was inconsistency with what they claimed to believe and what they did in practice. So the, the same ones that would say women aren't there to take care of men's needs would then in fact still be doing that <laughs> in their behavior. And just the opposite was true in this one woman I was just speaking about who held the most agency. She in fact really held that the gender ideology very clearly and she was clear that her husband was the head of the home, that her role was to be um, supportive to him in that role and there was no, that was very clear for her but in practice um, they actually did something very non-traditional and where she was the breadwinner, she, the primary breadwinner, she made more money than he did, she was very educated and um, so here she was doing something really inconsistent and very much what looked like a very egalitarian marriage but really holding still in her heart that this was about him being the leader of the home. And she had, at every career juncture, meaning in their decision-making, they, as a partnership, would pray and fast and make decisions about whether or not she should continue through medical school um, or stop. And at every point, they would both feel very clear and impressed that she should keep going. And so here they were really using their faith, using the... Um, personal revelation to allow them to create a marriage that was very much about a partnership, very much about doing what they believed Heavenly Father wanted them to be doing, and yet creating a marriage that wasn't particularly traditional at all. I mean, he was the one that was home with the kids through much of her training. And so, so she really held the ideology and yet in, in practice was doing something much more egalitarian. So she could use the culture and the religion she grew up with it to her advantage, to her benefit, versus trying to mold into the culture itself. And therefore, and part of that is ignoring some of the generalization uh, that leaders sometimes give as advice to church members. Yeah, and I think this is a lovely thing in our faith, because we have the basic structure of what we think we're supposed to do, and it's often the structure that we use to judge one another and all those things in, in all the worst ways. But here we have this understanding that it's our relationship, our personal relationship with God and the, the Holy Ghost and its ability to shape who we are and what we do and what decisions we make that can be very unconventional and yet we can understand that God wants them for us nonetheless. So I think it's a real resource. Yeah, and when I think of, you know, a loving heavenly being, however people want to identify with that, you think that that would be their vision for us, so... That's right. Okay, so any other stories you want to tell us as far as your sample, or are you ready um, to move on? Well, well, I could tell you a lot of sad stories, but maybe we could, <laughs> we could maybe move on. It's up to you. Okay, well, maybe maybe give us one of those. Um, let's see, just one that comes to mind. Oh, there's so many. I'm trying to think. You know, let me just say a couple of them. One, one was somebody who actually had a lot of sexual desire, but she grew up in a family where 
the the culture of the church was underscored by the culture of her family and her mother was very gave very complicated messages around female sexuality so she was very forgiving of her brother's sexual behavior but would be very critical of her daughter even though her daughter wasn't doing anything of saying you know that it was wrong to be wearing anything other than white underwear um, that you should never kiss boys because if you kiss too many boys they won't want you and so she gave the mother gave very clear messages that to be desirable was to have no desire. So here she got married and she actually had a lot of desire, but she never allowed herself to show it to him because she really feared that he would see her as shameless and, you know, out of control. And so she actually hid this from him. I thought it was very interesting. She would never initiate sex um, because it didn't fit with her notion of what a woman was supposed to be. And so that's one sad story. <laughs> These aren't horribly sad, but you know, they're sad for me because I just think of how much the inhibition and the lack of ability to say this is who I am. And, and that's where we really get our comfort in marriage. Um, another person, she, I think they're horribly sad by the yes, way too. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Great. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, another person that comes to mind was someone who, um, premaritally had been able to really feel in control of her sexuality and feel like she could ask for what she wanted. Um, but then when she got married, and she had a lot of desire because she was inhibiting herself, so she had a lot of desire premaritally, and in a lot of ways believed that marriage, if you could add sex to that, it was going to make their relationship work better, it was going to be happier, that some of the schisms between them premaritally would be soothed by the balm of a good sexual relationship. And when they got married, she immediately felt now the sense of pressure to take care of him. And it just snuffed out her desire from the get-go. And when I interviewed her, she'd probably been married about seven years at that point, six or seven years. But she, desire had just simply not come back. I, she, it, because his desire was so dominant relative to hers, um, that she just couldn't find the space to want, and it was all about her taking care of him, which very much replayed a dynamic of her childhood of, of taking care of her and meshing mother of her mother that was very controlling of her. So, so she just, you know, it was hard because she was in a marriage where she thought sex was going to be a wonderful thing, and it had not been a resource for her at all. So those are some of the the more challenging stories. And the, the sad thing about the challenging stories is that they can become quite cyclical, like one thing just continues to feed on the other thing, and, and it's very hard for a couple sometimes in that situation to turn things around just because the inertia, right. the inertia is going the wrong way. That's right. That's right. Um, and you've kind of uh, put this in all through the our talk together, but can you speak to your advice that you would give to parents? Well, I really feel like um, as parents, it's our job to really embrace sexuality as a gift from God and to really understand it as a fundamental part of being human beings, of being embodied human beings. I mean, I think in our theology, we really have uh, the ability to really celebrate our physicality, where I think in some other faiths, the body is seen as as what pulls you down. It's it's what keeps you from your spirituality. And in Mormonism, we really believe that the body is divine, and therefore that sexuality is divine. And so we really have the opportunity to embrace it in a, in a different way. And I think we owe it to our children to celebrate sexuality. I mean, I talk to my kids about this is a wonderful 
phenomenal thing that that we have it's a gift to us and yet it really really matters how and when and where we use it so it's it's terrific to be clear about that but it's also a powerful thing and it can be destructive if we're not very conscious about how we use our sexuality and I think that's in the core the message and and I mean I think a lot of us carry a lot of anxiety about sexuality and then that gets communicated in our just in those day-to-day moments as we talked about and so you really part of being a good parent and a good mentor around sexuality is confronting your own anxieties around sexuality also right and I tell couples a lot that whole idea that you know what you're able to offer to each other um, will more than likely be the role model that you're presenting to your children and not that we're talking about intimate sexual details with our children but again that nonverbal communication that children pick up on and that they will then have that much more likelihood to repeat whatever sexual life you're having is probably more than likely going to be similar to the sexual ability that your children will have that's right and you know a lot of times when I'm interviewing uh, people in my practice and asking them about how they learned their lessons about what it means to be a sexual being you know probably unbeknownst to their parents, they picked up on a lot of those messages and those signals around if their parents were comfortable being sexual or not. Were their parents frigid? Did they did they lean into touch? Did they lean away from touch? Did they was there were there times when the door their parents' door was closed and locked? Was there a sense that mom and dad made space and time for one another or not? And those are really powerful messages because I think as you get married and you start to have a family, that what, you know, then what is evoked in us is our sense of what is it to be a family? What is it to be a married person? And it's often those very um, unarticulated messages that have the most power over us. Yeah, and I see a lot of women who are very anxious about the fact that their children might know that they are sexual. Yes, They don't like that idea that they want to make sure that the children are asleep or uh, can't hear them so they also will um, stop their own verbal expression during lovemaking because they don't want anybody to hear so again it's very much about suppressing that's right in the sense that sexuality is inherently evil or will destroy their innocence rather than it's a fundamental part of being a human being and of course that doesn't mean you want your children to be privy to all of your sexuality of course but that you're at least embracing your sexual nature as as good and you're just going to help your kids know how to navigate this important part of themselves as they uh, have the maturity to do that. Yeah, and I, I, I like what you said about our, you know, our doctrinal theology supports sexuality being sacred and being important and yet... It's interesting to me, and I guess this goes along with our beliefs about Heavenly Mother, that we have these very, I think, important um, constructs that we could use, and yet we are afraid to use them for some reason. Um, I just wrote an article for an LDS women's magazine, and it was all about female sexuality, and they were very excited to have, you know, some education on this topic. And it was interesting as I started discussing these same concepts for an LDS audience, you know, Heavenly Father has a body, therefore, you know, we can look at our bodies as divine and I talked about Heavenly Mother having a body and they were not comfortable with my including those kinds of Mm. things and especially anatomical language Um, Mm. so for instance you know implying that Heavenly Father might have a penis that's very not 
not okay. Uh-huh. So, right. you know, I thought that was interesting because for me, those are the things that that I tie to our bodies being so wonderful. You know, those are the things that have helped me um, enjoy my body and my husband's body because I see that as very much tied to my idea anyway of what our, you know, heavenly parents look like and are like. Yes, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we can't even tap into our own wonderful theology. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in this, right. In, in these topics. Right. Okay. And maybe so, it's our job to go ahead and do it anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's what mm-hmm. I'm trying to do. It sounds like mm-hmm. you're trying to do that too. So mm-hmm. that's great. Yes. So with the couples that you work with, especially within the context of sexuality, what are some of the predominant themes that you're finding? Well. Um, in my practice, I, I definitely see a lot of imbalances in desire, and for, I know that there are plenty of marriages in which women have more desire than the men. Um, I mean, personal friends of mine who I know that's the situation, but for some reason in my practice, I, I seem to have um, lots of men who want more sexual experiences with their wives than they're having, and lots of women who have very low desire. Um, in my LDS clients anyway. I'm wondering, um, that's making me think of the whole feminism construct that the women who have the higher desire somehow that's not that's not important yes. enough to go to therapy for. <laughs> yes. But if and the if man that, has the, the higher desire, then we better get to therapy. That's right. And maybe the man's unwilling to come in and talk about it because it can be very shaming. We think sure. of desire as implicitly male, you know, that, that, that that's a part of being male. So if sure. you have low desire, it's it's going to be more shameful to speak about it than if you're a woman that has low desire. Absolutely. So that may be a piece of it. Absolutely. Also. So the desire issues are definitely, um, yeah, desire issues are a problem. I would say, um, pornography problems. Uh, I see a lot of that, some sexual addiction, um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about how you define sexual addiction and even pornography addiction? Because this is an issue I see a lot, and I find that these terms are being very loosely used among mm-hmm. Mormons, and I'm very concerned yeah. about that. Yeah. Well, I would say a lot of times couples will say he has a pornography addiction, and if I look at out how much he's actually using it, it would never, in my mind, qualify outside of the the context of their marriage and how she feels about it as an addiction. You know, it's not like he's using it compulsively. I would say I do have some LDS couples where they are using it compulsively four hours a day. It's interfered with their work. It's, you know, that they're sometimes staying, uh, you know, using the work computer, threatening their job status. I mean, so it's, it's compulsive. And yes. And then I would say I also have LDS um, people who are, uh, would qualify as a sexual addict in the sense that there's a lot of compulsivity, acting out behaviors that are, you know, acting out, going to massage parlors, going to um, adult-rated bookstores and peep shows and all these kinds of things that it's very incongruent with their sense of what they believe is right and what they should be doing. And there's a lot of deception and dishonesty and, and it's interfering with their ability to function well in the world. So, and especially uh, in the context of their marriage. Yes, absolutely. So, but what I would also say is that, you know, sometimes I'll talk about my cases, um, you know, without using names with my husband. And he just made the observation the other day, whenever you talk about pornography issues, it's always LDS couples. And I said, that's true. I don't even think any of my non-LDS couples have ever brought up the issue of pornography. 
but I think part of the reason is that because it's more, um, how to say, it's more accepted, I would say, at least one of the couples that I work with, she's like clear that he looks at pornography. She's, she knows he does, but it's not seen as much as a threat to her because she grew up in a much more sexually liberal environment and they both had lots of sexual experiences coming into marriage. So it's just a different cultural context in which they're making sense of pornography use. It's not and part so, of their contract together that he wouldn't look at that. That's right. That's right. Where when an LDS marriage, it's very much a part of the contract. It's very much a part of the assumption that for many people, just masturbation within the marriage is seen as, um, as in a breach in the contract. So, so yes, we hold a much more rigid standard around how we use our sexuality in the context of marriage. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. So what are some of the things you're finding useful in working with these couples? Well, I would say in working with low desire women, I do a lot of work around um, two pieces. One is um, their notions of sexuality and what it, sexuality means to them and essentially their disownership of that sexuality. And, you know, I do a lot of my own indoctrinating in a sense around, you know, basically expressing my sense of that, that sexuality matters and it matters for women, not in order to please their husbands and be sufficient for him, but because this is an important part of themselves that they have let go of, that they have disowned, that they have disconnected from, and that they have disconnected from a very important resource within themselves emotionally, psychologically, and interpersonally. And um, so I, I do a lot of educating about it and speaking another model uh, to offer it to them, to see if it's something that they can resonate with and take a hold of. And I'm often doing it in the context of talking about our faith and how I really believe this is an important part of being a righteous woman, so to speak, is to be sexual, to have pleasure, to have fun to enjoy oneself in this realm and for many this is just so counter to how they've ever thought about sexuality but i think for many they feel that it's a very welcome perspective that they want it that there's something that resonates with them about it and they want to get gain more access to their desire and their capacity to want um and their capacity for eroticism um i think the other way that I am thinking about it is around the interpersonal dynamics. And um, what I would say is the low desire spouse is often the one that will orient to sexuality from a place of duty, not from a place of desire. And that often the low desire spouse has come from a framework that has taught them, whether in their families of origin and or in the church, that their relational job in life is to take care of other people's feelings and to make others feel good about themselves and so on. So, and, and that precludes their own identification with their own wants and desires. So, you know, the metaphor that sometimes I think about or reference is, I think it was Margaret Mahler, the theorist who talked about the mother-child dynamic, a psychoanalytic uh, theorist. And so, you know, in the child who climbs down off his mother's lap um, as he's getting old enough to claim some, to start exploring the world and learning some independence and autonomy, if he climbs down off her lap and he goes 
steps away from her and it starts exploring the world and looks back and sees that she's smiling and that she's encouraging he gets the message or she gets the message that you know i can have the connection with my important other you know in my life my mother and i can also explore the world and 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 um how to say it, um, engage the needs of myself, you know, that I can attend to what I want and what I'm curious about and still be in connection. For the baby that, for the child that climbs down off her mother's lap and starts to explore the world and looks back and sees that mom is anxious and nervous, that she learns if I go and I tend to myself, if I take care of myself, then I am being destructive in my relationship. I'm undermining the security of having the bond that I need. You know, and I, I talk to people about sexuality in terms of needing both autonomy and connection. We all need both of those things. They are, um, they can often feel like they are competing needs, that you can't take care of the needs of the self while being in connection with another. And for those of us for whom that was played out in our families of origin that your job is to take care of me your parent and to do the things that will make me feel good or believe in ways that will make me feel comfortable or you know study professions that are in line with my dream of what you should be that those are the children that will often grow up feeling that their relational job is to make others feel good and that their the needs of the self cannot coexist when the needs of the self cannot coexist in a sexual relationship, you, you can't bring desire into, into the context of that loving relationship. So it will either be split off and you express desire through pornography or some other objectified form of sex, or, um, or you suppress it. And so I think that the relational challenge is learning how to hold on to the to this one sense of self and the needs of the self in the context of being in relationship with your spouse. And for many, this is an important psychological process outside of the sexual relationship, and then also one that is very important within the sexual relationship. Um, so. Yeah, well, uh, what you describe um, in my family therapy theories, Bowen the Bowenian theory of differentiation, that's a word I yes. use a lot. And that's pretty much what you're talking about, this idea of being able to separate but still be connected. Um, and that's that's, right. that's a quite a balancing act. And when you talked about, you know, taking care of our parents, I mean, I see so many parents who are very much distressed about whether or not their child is going to go on a mission, whether or not their child is going to attend seminary. I mean, there's a lot of power struggles happening with our teenagers um, right. and parenting issues and much of that I try to really help people look at how much of this has to do with uh, your concern for your child, which is obviously always part of it, but it also maybe has to do with how you define yourself as a good parent and what are others going to think you know, of you if your child doesn't go on a mission or doesn't attend seminary and um, is it fair really to put that kind of stuff onto your kid? That's right. And, and kids pick up on it and they know that that part of what is expected of them is to be who you want them to be and they'll either do it or they'll rebel against it but they haven't learned the important relational lesson of how to be who they are and still be in connection with you the parent or you the partner and to make those decisions um, maybe for deeper reasons than just my parent wants me to <laughs> right absolutely absolutely so, yeah that's right that's, and right, that's... which is which is self-definition in 
you know, in practice. And that self-definition is so important in desire, I think. Because you have to really feel comfortable with knowing who you are and expressing who you are and wanting from a wanting is a is an act of self-definition. So I think often those who are loath to want are struggling with their comfort level in expressing who they are and stepping outside of the framework of who do you want me to be. And I think women are especially vulnerable to this because this is what we get fed through all of young women's um, is that our job is to take care of other people, men in particular. Right. So, um, also going back to the theme of shame, you know, when you talk about pornography and some of these, um, issues or other ways that people express sexual incompatibility, uh, that's kind of the underlying theme. And so is that, how are you addressing that when people come in? Are you educating them about shame and how that plays a role? Yes, I mean, I'm I'm also looking at the same dynamic oftentimes with with men who are uh, looking at pornography or looking for more objectified forms of sex uh, because oftentimes they are trying to manage the needs of the self, but with outside of the context of the relationship because often they also feel um, that they're very much in a dutiful stance in the marriage that it's not okay to bring the whole of who they are into the marriage. So it's not just, it's shame, not just sexual shame, but shame in a broader sense. And so often then they're going to look to satisfy their own needs, but not when someone else is present. So it's easier to feel desire when the subjectivity of that, the other person is reduced through an image on a screen. You see what I mean? So they right. So almost like the the desire of the man is also scary to show that in full fledged to his wife because there's something right. maybe um, too carnal about that or too you know that's all he cares about is sex or um, so yes. and those are kind of the shaming messages we give to our men as well. That's right, and I just think that you know really uh, soulful, beautiful sexuality is very much about people really daring to show their authentic selves to one another. And that's very scary for most of us. I think most of us have learned that the world is conditional and love is conditional in some form or another. And therefore we have to inhibit and protect what we really express. So like you said, the person with whom we should feel the safest and the most able to share who we are is often the one that we are not willing to really expose our most vulnerable selves. Yeah, I find this um, to be the case very much when I bring up the idea of fantasy, when I'll ask couples, so, you know, have you shared with each other maybe some of the fantasies that you've had or have, you know, in the past or currently? And many times they'll look at me like deer's in the headlight <laughs> like uh, I you know I don't even want to admit I've had a fantasy much less share a fantasy you know with and so almost like that you know our thoughts are very much uh, we're accountable for our thoughts as well in our doctrine you know yes. as far as lusting or all those kinds of things but the idea that people do have fantasies is pretty much part of normal right. human development but we're not sharing these things That's and I right. think that also plays into the whole pornography piece for men that's right. So, yeah, and, you know, I sometimes say to people, you know, they'll say, well, as a man thinketh, and I will say to women, well, that's just for men. You can think whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> Use that. I love that. <laughs> 
use that in our favor. But um, right, that, that, that our fear around what fantasies mean and what they mean about us, and often they are rather, you know, that, that where we go in our minds is to the perverse, to the, the forbidden, to the things that we would never tolerate in the light of day that can seem very erotic in our private thoughts, um, can be very confusing for people you know, especially with this dictate that you, you know, as a man thinketh, so is he. So I think um, th one of the ways I talk to people about that is to say that that I think of fantasy as being more like dreams in the sense that there's a lot to learn about yourself and what you're trying to navigate in the sexual realm by understanding fantasies and what what they're telling you and teaching you about yourself because often they take us to the unresolved parts of ourselves in some form or another that often we go to the very thing that we seem that we would say we loathe the most that that's where our minds can go the other thing i would say about fantasy is this is my hypothesis i don't have research to back it up but i we need to start my... doing some research jennifer <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly so but i think that the more that that love desire split or how should i say it, the more you were able to be um the whole of who you are in the context of a loving relationship that where you were more able to reconcile the need you know, needs for autonomy and the needs for connection or connection to self and connection to other that when you're most able to reconcile those in your early relationships, I think the more our fantasies are more congruent or more comfortable for us. And the more split those realities were, often the less congruent or comfortable those fantasies can be for us. So I, I think it just speaks to the relational elements that we're trying to work out intrapsychically. And I think part of that is because when we're trying to move into arousal, the brain is looking for tension. <laughs> you know, it's about tension arousal. And so sometimes psychological thoughts that cause us some tension are arousing in that context. And helping to educate people about that can diffuse it and make it less shaming. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website, her online courses, information about her upcoming events, information about her free Facebook group, and more. Thank you for being here.